Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. If you have been on social media at all, then you've probably heard of a little website called the Babylon Bee. Uh, it's, it's one of my favorites. Uh, I, I have all their stories so that it alerts me when they post a new story because it, it brings a lot of humor into, uh, into what has become a, uh, kind of a, uh, an interesting existence in the coronavirus world that we live in. The, the bee's a satire site, and I love satire. Satire is probably my favorite kind of, of humor. Uh, satire is, is, is great because satire exposes truth through, through, the, through the art of, of known deception. So is satire a lie? Technically, yes, it's a lie, but it's a known lie, and, so it's, uh, and it's, uh, it's designed to, 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 ha- to teach us something. Uh, however, satire is not a new thing. It's not something that the onion came up with or the Babylon Bee has perfected. In fact, Christians have been using satire for a long time to communicate truth. Back in the 1960s, there was a satire story that was published, even had a, a short movie that was made about it. You can go, and, and if you Google this, you can go home and watch it today. It's about 35, 40 minutes long, and uh, it's, uh, it, it looks like... It looks like it's made in the, the style of like the Brady Bunch and I Dream of Jeannie, kind of those old 60s and 70s television shows. But, but the, 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 the satire story is called The Gospel Blimp. And that looks like something out of 1960 right there. The Gospel Blimp. What is the story of The Gospel Blimp all about? Well, The Blimp was about a, a group of friends who were gathered in the backyard of, of one of, the, one of the, the households represented. And they were sitting around having a, having a cookout and, and talking about just life. And uh, they, they were concerned about one of the neighbors and the neighbor's less than wholesome lifestyle. And in the process of their conversation, they began to formulate a, a strategy. How do, we, how do we take the gospel to our city, to our community? A well-meaning group of folks who, who concerned for their neighbor, how do, we, how do we penetrate this lost community with the gospel? And so their, their strategy, as you can imagine, was to deploy a gospel blimp into their community. So they bought a blimp, and they, they got backers to help fund the blimp, and their plan was simple, to, to fly the blimp around their community using the blimp to deploy various strategies at evangelizing the neighborhoods. One of the first strategies they used was they developed something called firebombs. Now, it's not what you think. A firebomb was a, was a little gospel track that was wrapped up in, in various colored cellophane, and they would wrap these little gospel tracks up by the thousands, and they would fly around their town, and they would deploy these little gospel tracks by the thousands into the city. And in the, 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 the short film version, uh, these little gospel tracks show up in all kinds of interesting places. There's one scene where a fellow's drinking a, a very large alcoholic drink. I'm not sure what it was, but, but one, of those, uh, one of those little firebombs lands right in the middle of his drink as he's about to take a sip. 
Uh, the kids are, of course, fascinated with this because they were under the impression that this was candy that was being rained down. But when they realized that there was no candy in the fire bombs, then they lost interest very quickly. Uh, it, it, became a, it became somewhat of a, of a distraction from the main thing, these little fire bombs that were being rained down from the blimp across the community. Well, as they sat back and rethought their strategy for how best to use their blimp to communicate the gospel, they, they then decided that the very best thing they could do with their blimp was to outfit it with a 100-watt stereo system. In 1960, that was something serious. And so they, they outfitted this blimp with a, with a massive stereo system, and they began to, again, fly around the community preaching the gospel over the, the stereo system in the blimp. And people were, of course, their ears were covered, dogs were howling, because, of course, you had to have some good music to go along with the, uh, with the preaching of, of the gospel. And so the blimp was not as well received when the stereo system be, uh, began to be used. Well, then they decided that, that in order to reach the people in the community who didn't speak English, that they needed to use the stereo system to broadcast the gospel in other languages. And in the process of doing so, they managed to, to take over the airwaves in those old television sets that all the houses had. And when people were watching their nightly television program, the uh, audio from the television program was co-opted by whatever foreign language gospel presentation they were broadcasting. Well, this, of course, was the last straw. And it led to a riot, and ultimately it led to the demise of the gospel blimp. You know, you think about the, uh, the gospel blimp that instead of pointing people to Jesus, what the blimp actually did was created resentment and hostility towards the gospel. Instead of, um, instead of these, these blimp missionaries uh, doing a good work, they actually felt like they were being persecuted for their faithfulness to the gospel. They were doing the Lord's work, and the town didn't appreciate it. However, as we approach our last beatitude, let's consider what the Bible does not say. The Bible here in this last beatitude does not say, blessed are those who are persecuted because they are obnoxious. That is not what the Bible says. You know, Christians are very quick to claim persecution. We look in our current day, and we might be able to accurately identify some, some levels of persecution in our current day. Uh, however, our final beatitude narrows the scope of this persecution. If you find that people don't like you because you drop thousands of slips of paper in their lawn or fly over their house playing a loudspeaker, that may not be the kind of persecution that Jesus has in mind. Kent Hughes said it this way. He said, sadly, Christians are very often persecuted not for their Christianity, but for their lack of it. Sometimes they are rejected simply because they have unpleasing personalities. They are rude, insensitive, thoughtless, or piously obnoxious. Some are rejected because they are discerned as proud and judgmental. Others are disliked because they are lazy and irresponsible. And I love this last line. Incompetence mixed with piety is sure to bring rejection. 
This morning we will be in our last beatitude found in Matthew's gospel, the fifth chapter. If you've got your place there, I would invite that you would stand with me as we read God's word together from Matthew chapter 5. I will read all of the Beatitudes and conclude here in verse 12, beginning in Matthew's gospel, the fifth chapter, the third verse. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the blessing that comes from an unlikely source, the blessing of persecution. May you bless our time in this season in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we find ourselves in this position, we need to be able to define persecution. And we need to understand this, that persecution is not limited to physical violence and imprisonment. There are certainly dark corners of our world where this is the norm for the Christian church. It's no understatement that I've, that just like I did with the children earlier, that there are places in the world where there are cold, dark, dingy jail cells waiting for folks simply because they love, serve, and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand that there are church buildings who are, that are raised in places like communist China and in Muslim countries. There are stories of secular regimes in Muslim countries imprisoning and torturing missionaries. And, and, and this is the dark reality that is experienced by many of our brothers and sisters around the world today. Some of what's happening in China by uh, requiring Chinese believers to worship the, the president of China rather than the Lord Jesus Christ to, in order to maintain their status as a state-sanctioned church is certainly horrifying. It's difficult, honestly, for us in this country to imagine that level of persecution ever taking place on our shores. However, we certainly have seen in recent days where some government officials have used the coronavirus uh, to, to use that as an opportunity to, uh, to, to impose what we believe to be discriminatory regulations against the churches. However, in spite of that, we still see our culture moving further and further to the left. And where 20 or 30 years ago, what I'm about to say seemed implausible, we are living in a day and time where it seems that we are the first generation where, where a pastor could invariably be sent to jail or prison for simply refusing to officiate a wedding that the culture deems to be appropriate. And that is the world in which we live, and we certainly would recognize that as a degree of religious persecution. 
However, when Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted, he's not just talking about that, that physical persecution that happens in these dark corners of the world. And this beatitude, he's, he's not just talking about systemic persecution that may be sponsored by the state or the religious, the prevailing religious authorities in a country. What he's talking about here actually can be personal persecution as well. Jesus warns us that, that persecution can come in a verbal form where physical attack or, or destruction or violence never has to happen. When people speak ill about your faith, uh, when you go to work and you refuse to compromise in a particular issue because of your faith and you are mocked for it, when our young people go to school and they refuse to compromise their virtues because of their faith and they are made fun of it, those are those are verbal persecutions that, that happen that we experience on a daily basis here. We could add to that list things like missed opportunities. Maybe you or you know someone who was passed over in a job situation or promotion because of your faith or their faith, and someone who had less, uh, less moral scruples about them were, were promoted into a position that maybe you were more qualified for. Indeed, we have this new thing called a social media mob that's turned into a digital form of persecution where people are literally pulled through a keyhole by the myriad of, of, of difficult people online because they took an unpopular stand that just so happens to be a biblical stand. And while that we would definitely recognize is not as severe as going to jail for one's faith, it is persecution nonetheless that happens, again, not at a systemic state-sponsored level, but certainly on a personal level as we take stands for righteousness. Persecution may also take the form of, here's a funny word, social distancing. You say, Pastor, I'm persecuted all week long then. I'm not talking about social distancing in its current context. I'm talking about a different form of social distancing. It was already a thing long before Dr. Fauci stood up and told us that we should do this. Uh, if you've tried to live out your Christian faith, maybe you found that people acted differently around you. Uh, I've uh, had the joy as a pastor of seeing people act and behave totally different around me because, because I, I, I'm, I'm a pastor. Uh, well, I can't say, I can't cuss because the preacher's here. Or I shouldn't do this because the preacher's here. And, and I want to look at those folks and say, brother, if you're worried about me, you've got bigger problems than me. Uh, but, but people behave differently because they're around you. It, you maybe have experienced that before. Or, or maybe you found that conversations stopped when you got a little too close because someone knew about your faith. Perhaps you came to faith later in life, and as a consequence of your coming to faith later in life, people who used to be your best friends no longer want anything to do with you. Or maybe even in more painful situations, your family has started to keep you at a distance because of your Christian faith. I've heard of many wives who faithfully walk with the Lord and their faith is completely shunned by unbelieving husbands. Uh, again, that's a, that's a form of, of persecution. Again, it's not s as severe as what we see in China or other places, but it's still a form of, of persecution where people shun you, reject you, stay away from you because of your Christian faith. 
The fact of the matter, and the Bible is very clear about this, all Christians, every single Christian should face some level of persecution because their lives run contrary to the prevailing winds of culture. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That is a guarantee in the Bible. It's not a condition. It's not a, it's not a possibility. Paul said there in 2 Timothy 3.12, as clear as could be, that everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. So I can tell you today, based on the authority of the Word of God, that if you choose to live your life in a godly way, in some, in some form, in some capacity, you're going to take some level of persecution. If you find that you aren't represented by the word all, then there may be a couple of reasons. You say, Pastor, I'm... I'm not worried about that. I've never, never had to taste persecution. So maybe if you say I'm not tasting any kind of persecution, there's a couple of reasons. One of those reasons is you're not really living a godly life. Uh, notice what Paul said. Anyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. So if you've never tasted persecution in your business or persecution in your business dealings or persecution in your family or persecution in your school, if you've never had that experience before, then maybe your life doesn't look all that different from the life of the world, of the culture in which we live. The other possibility is this, and I think this probably affects a lot of us. You're stuck inside a Christian bubble. You're stuck inside a Christian bubble bubble. I'll tell you, the struggle there is real. Uh, for, for me, I, I mean, I think I'm around Christians most of the day. Uh, you know, I'm looking at some of these guys, and you know, you wonder, but, but uh, I, just kidding. We've got great staff, and I know they love the Lord, um, but maybe you're in a Christian bubble. You don't deal with those on the outside. You don't deal with a, a lost culture. You don't deal with people who don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, and so as a consequence of that, you don't um, if, if you live in a Christian bubble and you think you're being persecuted, that's not persecution. That's just having a bad day. Um, but if you live in a world that's not completely surrounded by Christians and you don't find that your Christian faith is running contrary to the world around you, uh, that should raise a concern. Just consider how the other Beatitudes play in this world as you consider this. For example, the disciple is someone who's poor in spirit. It's what Jesus said in the Beatitudes in the, in the very first one, verse 3. The, the disciple is poor in spirit, but the world says you shouldn't be poor in spirit. You should be self-sufficient. You are your own. You, you make yourself. You're, you're the boss of your own world. You're, you're not poor. The world doesn't want you to be poor in spirit. The disciple is someone who mourns his sin. Blessed are those who mourn. And the world says that, you know, there's no such thing as sin. Sin is, uh, sin is the, the great sin of today is offending somebody else. And as long as you can dodge that bullet, which is getting harder and harder to do, you're, you're going to be just fine. Just embrace everything, embrace everybody. And that's not what the beatitude gives us permission for. The beatitude says that the disciple is someone who is meek. Blessed are the meek. The disciple pursues meekness. But the world looks at meekness and says that's something that rhymes with meekness called weakness. The meek are weak. The disciple is someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, but the world hungers and thirsts to satisfy the desires of the flesh. The disciple is someone who shows mercy, but the world is mean and unforgiving. The disciple is a peacemaker, but I can't help but think that the world seems to prefer unrest. 
I feel like my lifetime and maybe your lifetime, you feel this way, that the world has seemed to be at, at be unsettled far more than it's been at peace. It seems to me that the prevailing desire of the world is that we not be at peace, but that we be at, in conflict. And so we see that there is this remarkable contrast between the picture of the disciple that Jesus paints for us in the Sermon on the Mount and the reality of the world. And so if we are trying to order our lives by the principles given to us in the Beatitudes, then every day of our existence we should be running headfirst into a firing squad of a culture that hates what we stand for. Every single day, our faith should be, should be attacked because we are standing against what this world says is appropriate. And so we should taste persecution for the very simple fact that what we stand for is completely contrary to what the world stands for. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 this, says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of your visitation. You see, if you're a disciple of Christ who's working to see the principles of the Beatitudes deployed in your life, then your whole daily existence is going to run contrary to the world. However, because we live righteously, then none of the accusations fired at us have an opportunity to stick. The Bible tells us here in the Beatitudes, the words of Jesus tell us that in our persecution, we should be rejoicing. And if you'll pay attention, go back to, to verse, uh, verse 10 for just a second. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But then look what happens in verse 11. Blessed are you. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Did you notice how Jesus takes this beatitude and immediately makes it personal? You see, up until this point, it's been, uh, it's been clinical. It's been uh, talking about principles. It's been talking about the, the generic disciple. Who is this generic disciple? Well, it's the poor in spirit. It's the, it's the mourner. It's the meek. It's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's the generic disciple. Paint a picture of a disciple, and he'll look like this. But here in this beatitude, Jesus takes it from the generic to the personal, and suddenly he's not talking about us. He's talking to us. Blessed are you when these things happen. And what Jesus says can almost seem macabre if we're not ready to receive it. Jesus says that we should find joy in our persecution. You know, church history has literally been filled with stories of Christians who have rejoiced in their seasons of persecution. There's a little book on my shelf. It's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's an old book. It's been around forever. And Fox's Book of Martyrs tells the story of, of Christians who have faced the gauntlet because of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've taken martyrdom for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of, these, some of the stories of these martyrs are absolutely incredible. Preaching the gospel on the way to their place of execution. Volunteering to be burned at the stake without being tied down because of their faith in Jesus Stories of people who had the incredible ability to find joy in the midst of what should have been in remarkable suffering. How do we find joy in persecution? How do we, how do we rejoice 
in something so horrific as the reproach that persecution brings. Well, the first thing we need to remember is this. Our reward is great in heaven. Our reward is great in heaven. I'm reminded of Stephen there in Acts chapter 7. If you remember Stephen's story, he was a deacon, and he was a man who loved the Lord. He was faithful, and he got, he got called to account for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Stephen preaches this incredible historical account of, of, of God's plan of redemption through the people of Israel leading up to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, 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 the religious folks are going, going nuts as he, is, as he is indicting them in what's happened. And he is in the center, and they are, they are all armed to the teeth. They are ready to take care of this. And in Acts chapter 7, when it's all said and done, in verse 54, we read these words. Now when they, being the religious leaders, when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. You ever been so mad you ground your teeth at somebody like a dog baring his teeth? They ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, this is something. Full of the Holy Spirit. He gazed into heaven, he saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I get chill bumps at this moment. I mean, this is incredible. And what's he say? <laughs> Fire away, boys. He says, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The man is about to have his skull smashed with rocks. At this moment, if you all had rocks in your hands and you were about to throw them at me, I, even if they weren't necessarily giant rocks, I'd be a little nervous. I'd like to think that I'd look up and see Jesus, but honestly, I'd think about trying to get to the door as quick as I could and, and, and see if I could outrun y'all. Stephen here sees no way of escape. But God grants him this incredible vision of what's about to be waiting for him. They kill him right there. And that vision he saw became reality in that moment. Our reward is great in heaven. The fact of the matter is this, there is no amount of suffering we can endure in this life that will diminish the glory we receive in the next. In fact... Every bit of suffering we taste here today only amplifies the glory that we taste tomorrow, which I think helps to explain why people can sit in a jail cell and be tortured for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and yet still be able to smile and give thanks every single day because they know that that momentary suffering that may last them a lifetime in jail will not compare to the eternity of glory that's waiting for them when they breathe their last breath. And knowing that should give us cause to rejoice. Secondly, we need to recognize this, that persecution is a certificate of Christian authenticity. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14, Peter says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You see, when Christ's following comes with a cost, we find out really quickly where the true disciples are. When, when it's expensive to follow Jesus, well, that weeds out a lot of the, the riffraff pretty quickly. 
But when coming to church, when reading your Bible, when being part of the body of Christ comes with the potential for being arrested, you find out real quick who means it and who doesn't. And we recognize that, that enduring that trial, enduring that persecution, is a certificate of authenticity. Many people have fallen away over the course of history because the fire of persecution got a little too hot, got a little too close. But what we find to be true is that when we love the Lord Jesus Christ and we will, take, we will walk through the fire for him, that it strengthens us and reminds us of the authenticity of our faith. And then lastly, we should rejoice because when we are persecuted for righteousness, we are suffering on his account. Over in Acts chapter 5, the apostles are arrested. They went in and out of jail quite a few times there in the early season of the church. They were arrested, they were tried, all those sort of things. And when they were released, we read one of the most inspiring responses. They didn't, uh, they didn't get out of jail and tuck their tails and run. Instead, what we find in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, is that they left the presence rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They left their trial celebrating and shouting, even though they had been rebuked and warned that they weren't to preach the gospel anymore. They no quick than got out the door. Then they began to sing the songs of the faith. They began to rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, when we face persecution because of our stands for righteousness and God says, I want you to suffer as a result of this, that is good news. That is good news. And just as I shared with the children earlier, Paul and Silas found themselves in prison in Philippi. And instead of a pity party, and they had a praise party. Singing hymns in the stocks in the inner prison. Because what else do Christians do in the stocks, in the inner prison of a Philippian jail? You can't play I Spy, it's dark. So you sing, you rejoice. There is a recognition, perhaps even a badge of honor, that when we find ourselves suffering some level of persecution thanks to our relationship with Christ and our commitment to live lives that honor him, as we finish the Beatitudes, we need to remember this. The Beatitudes paint a comprehensive portrait of a Christian disciple. Somebody says, oh, I wish I knew what, a, what were the marks of a disciple. Well, how do you, how do you identify what a, what a true disciple of Jesus looks like? And I would point you back to Matthew chapter 5, here verses 2 through verses 12. This is what a disciple looks like. And you see this in how Jesus builds this. You know, Jesus is, a, is obviously the, the best preacher who's ever lived, and so he's put together one of, the best, one of the best sermons that's ever been preached. And you'll notice he does something with his words here that matter. If you go back to the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a statement of inheritance. When we are poor in spirit, the reward for being poor in spirit is the kingdom of heaven, which means that if you don't have the kingdom of heaven, what are you not? 
If you don't possess the kingdom of heaven, then you're not a follower of Jesus because there's only two options, smoking or none. Okay? So if you don't possess the kingdom of heaven, you're clearly not a follower of Jesus. And so in order to possess the kingdom of heaven, you must be poor in spirit. We recognize that. We talked about that weeks ago when we discussed the fact that, that being poor in spirit means that we identify that we are unable to solve this problem on our own. We are completely and totally at the mercy of Jesus to solve our problem, which is our great spiritual bankruptcy. But then the last beatitude, the eighth beatitude, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. For what? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what you call a bookend, which means that everything between the bookends is pertinent to our conversation. And so we can go back and we can say, am I poor in spirit or am I self-sufficient? Am I mourning my sin or am I indifferent? Am I meek or am I prideful? Do I hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or do I pursue the flesh? Do I show mercy? Or do I hold grudges and seek vengeance? Am I pure in heart or is my heart stained with the folly of sin? Am I a peacemaker or a troublemaker? Am I persecuted because of my righteousness? If you can go back and say, I'm, I'm growing in these things. These are areas where there's progress being made. I can see places where there's weakness, and, and I'm, I'm investing in those areas. I can see places where there are strengths, and I am thriving in those areas. If, if you can say that, you're well on your way to one day receiving that kingdom of heaven. But if you look at this list and you say, I'm not doing any of this, I would tell you today that the most important thing you can do right now is to fall on your face before God and confess your shortcomings. Admit to God that you're a sinner today and that you need forgiveness that only Christ can provide. That you'd give your life to Jesus today. You'd find forgiveness for your sins. And you indeed would receive the kingdom of heaven. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we're thankful for the word of God, for the fact that it speaks to us in our time of need. We thank you, Father, for the blessing of persecution. Lord, may we recognize and know that we should be persecuted for righteousness, not because of indifference, not because of our sin issues, not because of our weaknesses. Lord, we pray that if there's any in this room or any watching wherever they're watching online. And they look at the, this list in Matthew chapter 5 and they see that there's, there's no growth. In fact, if, if each of these beatitudes were a marker of being a Christian, 
they'd come up short every single, in every single step. Lord, today they need to follow the Lord Jesus, repent from sin and trust in Christ. May you give them the courage to speak with a staff member when our service is over or, or just send that email that we can follow up and connect. And, and Lord, maybe there's some of us in the room that we, we know that we're, we're, we're Christians, but we certainly struggle on a daily basis to live lives of righteousness. God, help us to identify the, the parts of our life that we come up short in and that we would seek your face in, grow, in growing in those areas and, and find the healing where the, where the hurts exist. God, we thank you for the Sermon on the Mount, for the Beatitudes, and for the soul surgery that these words have performed on each one of us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.